the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Here in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, Jesus begins his public ministry. That's what Luke tells us anyway at this point in time. So exactly what is the ministry of Jesus Christ? We'll spend some time laying some background for you to help us understand that. Next, on this edition of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. As mentioned a moment ago, Jesus begins his public earthly ministry, at least here in Luke chapter 4, as Luke records it for us. And right from the start, he stirs up a great deal of dissension to the point to where those around him want to kill him. So what is really going on? And why does he start his public ministry in this fashion? Well, in the next couple of days, before we really get to the heart of the ministry of Jesus Christ, we'll take a look at a few foundational points and get some background behind what's really going on. Join us for today's broadcast of Abounding Grace from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner. The message of this story and the life of Christ is so big, so comprehensive, so broad, and so deep that any serious believing study of this passage of Scripture will bring you eternally, eternal rewards. It will stimulate the mind, stir the emotions, and feed the soul. But to appreciate the richness of the spiritual nourishment that is to be found in these verses in Luke, a great deal of background must be drawn so that we can understand the words and the phrases to see what was going on that day that was so dramatic that Jesus Christ was almost assassinated, so to speak. So background is what we'll be focusing on for the rest of today. What was it that made this event such an important, dramatic event? Luke, in the fourth chapter, is beginning the Galilean ministry of Jesus with his preaching in Nazareth. But it's not because that was the first city he visited in the region of Galilee. Mark and Matthew said that Jesus didn't get to Nazareth until later on in his ministry. But Luke puts it right at the beginning of Christ's ministry. Not because Luke didn't know the chronological order but because Luke wanted to take just one example of Jesus preaching and put it at the beginning of his record that would illustrate what Jesus was preaching in the very early days of his ministry and the kind of impact his preaching had on the crowds. In fact, in verse 23, Luke, in quoting Jesus, informs that, informs us that he knows this isn't the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Verse 23, And he said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, Heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, 
do also in our country. So Luke is telling us that he is aware of the fact that his hearers know that Jesus Christ has been teaching in other cities throughout Galilee. Again, because Matthew and Luke put his preaching in Nazareth at the end of his Galilean ministry, and Luke puts it at the very beginning, people are quick to say, here's another error in the Bible. There is no error at all. Luke knows that Jesus has been preaching in Galilee for some time. He knows that the Nazareth incident did not happen until later on in Jesus' ministry. But he places it first in his record because it is an ideal example to show us what Jesus was preaching in those early days, what his emphasis was, and what impact his preaching had on those who had the opportunity to hear him. Now, if we're going to understand Jesus preaching at all, we must understand the kingdom of God because that was the theme of his preaching. That was its focus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all emphasized that Christ's preaching was focused on the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? Listen carefully. The kingdom of God is the manifestation of the sovereign rule of God in power and grace, which established the new order of righteousness and blessedness in history, in and through Jesus Christ, in fulfillment of God's promises. Through the kingdom of God, he was going to bring order back to his creation. Man no longer recognized his accountability to God. So he was going to change that situation and restore his sovereign will and man's sense of responsibility to it. And in order to do that, he would have to change men's hearts. So he exerted his power into their lives and into their hearts and their cultures. Because man does not deserve to have his life changed and be reconciled with God. The kingdom of God is one of grace, totally undeserved. It is unmerited and it is unearned by all of us. And when the kingdom of God cuts its way through history, it establishes a new order, a new civilization, a new way of life. Beloved, God is not just concerned with saving solitary individuals here and there throughout history. God is concerned through the Lord Jesus Christ in advancing His kingdom into a new civilization on the earth that is dominated by righteousness, that is conformity to the Word of God. A civilization that is marked by blessedness where people from various nations and cultures learn to obey God out of faith in Christ. And God's blessings begin to permeate the totality of their existence and their relationships in this life. And he does it all in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this power is identifiable. It is specific. It is not something vague or something abstract. When the kingdom of God establishes itself in your heart and among communities of people, 
You begin to see the covenant promises of God come to fruition more and more conspicuously in your life as well as in the lives of all the families that are being converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the kingdom of God is the manifestation of the sovereign rule of God in power and grace, which establishes a new order of righteousness and blessedness in history, in and through Jesus Christ, in fulfillment of God's covenant promises. All of God's parables are even concerned with the kingdom of God. The parables made three great emphases. There is a past tense, there is a present tense, and there is a future tense to God's kingdom. It has come, is come, and will come just like the little seed and the plant that we read about in the parables. Jesus said the, king, the seed of the kingdom of God has been planted. God's kingdom broke into history along with all of its power a little over 2,000 years ago with the life, ministry, and death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now that seed grows like a mustard seed and like leaven. It continues to grow more and more in its influence over more and more people and in its numerical increase until it becomes the greatest tree in all of human society under which all other trees come for shade. And eventually there will be a harvest of the plant at the end of the world when Jesus Christ comes again. He's going to perfect what he has begun, bringing his kingdom to total, full perfection in the perfect new heaven and new earth, filled with new people, body and soul, and where all of his enemies are condemned to hell for an eternity. The planting of the seed. The kingdom has already come. It is here. It is now active. The growth of the seed. It is cutting its way through history, triumphantly bringing down God's enemy and causing the kingdoms of this world to become the kingdoms of our God and His Christ and the harvest of the plant. At the end of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come and finish what He has promised that He has begun before. So in understanding the ministry of Jesus and his preaching, we've got to understand the focus of everything he said. He came to earth to put the kingdom of God into effect so that all of God's promises may come true and all of God's people throughout the world. Now remember to whom Luke wrote his book. Matthew wrote his book to the Jews to impress them with the fact that Jesus Christ is the kingly Jewish Messiah. Luke tells us that his concern is to address the gospel to non-Jewish people. And that's why many of the things that you read in Matthew and Mark you don't see in Luke. Because non-Jewish audiences wouldn't understand these things that were of specific nature to the Jewish background and interest. Luke's concern was to reach the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people of the world for Christ. So he represents Christ in such a way as to let them know that he is the divine human savior of the world. And he also recognizes that his non-Jewish audience, like most of us, 
must also gain an appreciation for the Old Testament. You say, here we go again. So he begins his account of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ with an historical picture of Jesus reading out of the Old Testament, having an Old Testament text, applying it to himself, and then preaching a sermon based upon that text. And Luke did so because he was such a passionate lover of the Bible. And he understood the Christian faith well enough to realize that Christianity was not a new religion. That Christianity didn't just come upon the scene 2,000 years ago with the birth of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is not the founder of Christianity. That Christianity is a religion that has been flowing for a millennia before that because it is simply the fulfillment, the perfecting, the culmination of the great history of the Hebrews that preceded that moment. So the life and the work and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was defined and explained by the Old Testament. Understanding the Old Testament is essential to understanding the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the New Testament, and Luke understood that. The Old Testament is the root from which Christianity grows, beloved. We talk about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, but basically there is only one, the covenant of grace. We talk about an old covenant revelation and a new covenant revelation, but basically there are two aspects of the same gospel proclamation. There are not two religions in the Bible, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. There is one religion, and if you honestly and consistently read the Old Testament and the New Testament together, you will find that the same church is in both. The Christian church didn't start on the day of Pentecost. It goes all the way back into the Old Testament. It's the same way of salvation in both. The Old Testament didn't teach salvation by works, and the New Testament salvation by faith. The entire Bible teaches salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone. The same faith is defined in both. The same Christ, the same definitions, words in the Old Testament mean the same in the New Testament. They have the same goals. They have the same gospel, the same laws. There is not a law for the Jews in the Old Testament and a new law in the New Testament for Christians. That's bogus. There is a continuity, a unity to both. Luke recognizes that if you are not Jewish and you are going to understand the historical nature of Christianity, you must understand its relationship to the Hebrews of the Old Testament and the foundation of their religion. So he begins his record of public teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ with him teaching from an Old Testament text. Now, in verse 14, Luke tells us that Jesus begins his preaching in the power of the Spirit. 
the Spirit of God that had just empowered him in his struggle with Satan. The Spirit of God that came upon him in his baptism is now the same Spirit of God that empowers him in all of his preaching. The reason that Christ's preaching ministry changed so many hearts and continues to do so after 2,000 years is because of the work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now, there were three things that characterized his Galilean ministry. There are three things that always come to the surface when you talk about the preaching of Jesus Christ. Number one, it was very popular ministry. People from everywhere came to hear him. His fame and reputation was widespread. Look at verse 15. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. Everybody loved to hear the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know why? It wasn't just because he was the Lord. The same people who were praising his preaching at this point in time are the same people who want to kill him later on. So what was it about the preaching of Jesus that they liked, that they enjoyed, that touched them? Well, it was a tremendous contrast in the first place to the lifeless, repetitious, and senseless triviality of the rabbis. Rabbinic preaching had degenerated into something that had become extremely boring. In fact, let me give you an example. There is a book written by a man whose name was Maimonides. Now, he was a 12th century rabbi. But this is the same senseless preaching that went on in the time of Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example of the kind of preaching that they would have been exposed to in the day of Jesus that would have caused anyone to be drawn to a man who was a skillful and powerful preacher as Jesus was. Here, first of all, is an example of the text that Maimonides and many other rabbis preached on. On the first day, you shall take the tree, the fruit of the hanger tree. Whole sermons and debates and essays were written on the nature of this tree. Now, see if you can even understand this sermon and if this would have held your attention at all. First of all, some said the tree referred to was a quince. The fruit was a quince. Some said it was a pomegranate, and others said it was some other fruit. But this had become a big issue. And here is some of the bait that, you could, have been, that could have been heard in the synagogues. Listen. Some rabbis bring scriptural proof from the juxtaposition in the text of the words fruit and tree to indicate that it must be the, tree, the fruit of the tree which bark tastes the same as the fruit of the tree, which is the true, which is the tree, which is the fruit of the tree esrog. Another sage finds a hint for the esrog in the word hadar, explaining that the word hadar can be interpreted to mean batten, that is a fruit that dwells in the tree from year to year, which can only mean an esrog. A third sage, in noticing a kinship between hadar and the Greek hydor, meaning water, says that it is a fruit that grows on much water and esrog. Come on. And this argument amongst them goes on and on and on. That is the type of preaching that went on in many of the synagogues of Jesus' day. 
So when Jesus came to the synagogues and preached, he drew tremendous crowds because his preaching wasn't trite and boring. He was preaching lively. People loved to even watch him preach. He was also authoritative. He knew what he was talking about. Whenever the early rabbis had disagreements as to what the Torah or the oral law meant, do you know how they determined the truth? They would take a vote, and the majority vote would determine which ideas they would teach. But there was authority in Jesus' voice. People love to hear preachers talk who, at heart, at least act like they know what they're preaching about. And that's why the crowds came to hear Jesus. His preaching was also organized. Check out sometime the Sermon on the Mount. There is an outline to that sermon. If you can't outline a preacher's sermon, you probably won't get much out of it. Sermons that are not well organized don't stay with us, beloved. They may impact us emotionally, but they don't stick into our minds for very long. For those who may be aspiring to be preachers, one of the most important things you can do is learn how to outline well. Make sure that all of your points in your outline come from the text and make sure that there is an ascetic value to the outline. The better your outline, the easier it is for people to remember what you're talking about. And people could remember what Jesus preached because his preaching was well organized. Sermons that are not well organized, that are spontaneous, are not usually even worth listening to. His sermons were practical. They had to do with everyday life. They weren't intellectual abstract orations that weren't connected to the everyday nitty-gritty experience of its hearers. They were practical and down-to-earth. They were interesting. One of the problems with modern-day worship modern and modern preaching is that it is strictly bent on entertainment. Churches are packed out because the people have come to be only entertained. So many Reformed pastors, to show their disapproval, have pushed the pendulum far to the other direction to avoid being entertaining and are as dry as dirt in the scorching heat. Sermons must be somewhat entertaining. They must be interesting or you're not going to listen to them. I myself find sermons much more interesting when the preacher puts his inflections in the right place and is passionate about what he's preaching on and includes a little humor here and there. Entertainment is not to be the focus of one's preaching. It should be the sound, accurate exegesis of God's Word. But the preacher has got to grab your attention. Jesus was extremely interesting in such a grand order, orator that people couldn't help but want to listen. And people listened to Jesus because what he had to say was true. Not everyone that listened to him was willing to pay the price to follow the truth, but they did love to hear his preaching. 
And there were many people who heard him preach that recognized what he preached was the truth of God, who decided to follow him and couldn't ever get enough of his preaching. In this early stage of his ministry, crowds would come to listen and pack out every place that he spoke. And he was highly praised for his skill and for the truth of what he said, because he spoke in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that'll bring us to the end of our time today here on Abounding Grace with our teacher and pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Thank you for joining us today. It's our hope and prayer that we've been able to encourage you in Christ and stimulate your walk in Him. To address questions, comments, prayer requests, or concerns, please call or write to us. We'd love to talk with you. 408-866-5607 is our phone number, 408 408- Eight six six five six zero seven. You're also welcome to visit our website. Drop us an email when you do. Reformedheritage.org. Real simple. Reformedheritage.org. A lot of information there about who we are. We would invite you again to stop by. Reformedheritage.org. Or if you're writing to us, the address is PMB Post Mailbox four zero two, and the address is fourteen eighty four Pollard Road. Los Gatos, California, 95032. That address can be found on our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, simply call 408-866-5607. Copies of today's program are just $5. Mention today's date, and we'll get a CD out to you. And please remember that we are listener-supported which means when you link arms with us financially, we're able to continue the ministry here on this station. It's a great way to study God's Word together, isn't it? And we'd love to continue to do so. Would you prayerfully consider how God might be leading you to partner with us? We'd love to hear from you. Again, won't you call 408-866-5607 or reformedheritage.org. Sunday services, by the way, if you'd like to join us, are 2 in the afternoon. We're located at Lone Hill Church, 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org. Again, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. Further information can be found, again, at reformedheritage.org or by calling 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, God bless. (music) 